0: We're in the middle of a summer long series on the New Testament epistle of 1 John, uh, but we're going to take a hiatus from that for a week here. We're going to do something a little different. The Love One Another series will be back next week. Uh, But what I want to do today is uh, take us up to a cruising altitude of about 35,000 feet and look at the question of the reliability of the New Testament. Um, can we trust that the English Bibles we have before us that we study in and, and learn from are reliable? Are they the Word of God, the authoritative, orthodox, and apostolic Word of God? So that's what we're going to do today. Um, in our increasingly secular culture, uh, it's become popular to uh, diminish the reliability of the New Testament, to, to claim that it's, it's not really what we Christians believe it to be. Um, particularly because it uh, it makes reference to the existence of God, to the deity of Jesus, and to his working supernatural miracles, all of which are uncomfortable to the naturalistic mind of our culture today, right? So the, uh, the charges made in popular culture against the reliability of the New Testament come in three categories. And the first of those is biased translation. So this is the claim that... Uh, in in going from the original Greek in which the New Testament was written to the modern language, English in in our case, the church has made those documents say what the church wanted it to say rather than being faithful to the original, okay? Now, this is really a non-issue among scholars. And the reason for that is that we have available to us today... uh, experts in the Greek of the New Testament times from across the spectrum of religious and a-religious belief. So you can take your modern English Bible to, any, to an atheist Greek scholar and say, how about it? Is this a, a valid attempt to translate the Greek? And the answer would be yes. Now, there, there is one exception and that would be the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they're guilty of the heresy of uh, Arianism, which denies the deity of Jesus. And so in 1951, a group of, an anonymous group of JW folks got together and produced the New, New World Translation. And in it, they did systematically and in a biased way change many but not all of the passages that most clearly affirm Jesus' deity. But with regard to to your English Bible, if it's not the New World Translation, the the charge of biased translation just doesn't really get off the ground, okay? The third category of charges against the New Testament is that of unreliable testimony. This is the claim that uh, the writers of the books of the New Testament were either unable or unwilling to tell the truth about Jesus, who he was, what he said, and did that in fact they allowed legend to creep into their accounts of Jesus' life. Now, we're not going to discuss that today because it would take me a whole other sermon or two. Uh, I do like talking about that because as it turns out, all of the evidence and all of the reason lead to the conclusion that the New Testament depiction of Jesus as divine, dying and rising again, miracle-working, creator-redeemer is the uniquely accurate understanding of the reality in which we all live. But that'll have to wait for another time. Where I want to spend our time today is in the second charge, which is that of tainted transmission. So this charge is basically that um, we don't have the originals, what are called the autographs, of any of the books of the New Testament. And the, the copies that we do have are full of discrepancies, places where one copy says one thing and another says another. So the, the extreme version of this charge is, so we have no idea what the original New Testament said. And so Christianity is, is based on what we don't know. Um, need to understand that the Christian doctrines of the inspiration and authority and, and inerrancy of Scripture have as their referent the originals, not any of our modern translations, okay? So, so your, your New American Standard Bible is not inerrant. It's the originals in the Greek that it, it was translated from, okay? So this idea of uh, the fact that we don't have any of the originals is not at all surprising. In New Testament times, the writing material would have been papyrus. So think about going out and harvesting some marsh grass you know, some real young cattails or something, and then smashing it together, pulverizing it, and letting it dry in the sun, you're not going to expect it to last 2,000 years after you write on it, right? The fact of the matter is that we don't have the originals of any ancient writings from New Testament times or previous. And so with regard to how reliable is an ancient uh, document, the question is not do you have the original, but how many copies do you have, and how close in time to the original are they? How early are they? And so I wanna give you um, three typical examples of ancient documents that are deemed by historians to be reliable based on the copy evidence we have. So Thucydides wrote his History of the Peloponnesian War in Greek between 460 and 400 BC. We have eight copies and the earliest comes from AD 900. 1,500 years after the original, and yet historians trust that they know what Thucydides wrote. Caesar's Gallic Wars were written in 100 to 44 BC. We have 10 copies with the earliest coming from AD 1000, of more than a full millennium after the original. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote his Annals in 16 books uh, in AD 100, about the time that the New Testament was being completed. We have two copies. The earliest comes from AD 1100, again, 1,000 years later. And in this case, we're missing five of the 16 books, okay? By contrast, the New Testament, which was written between 45 and, and 100 AD, we have a fragment of the Gospel of John that dates to AD 117, whole books of the New Testament from AD 200, Most of the New Testament from AD 250 and the entire New Testament from AD 340. Regarding the number of copies, we have nearly 6,000 copies of the New Testament in the original language of Greek. In addition, we have 8,000 copies translated early on into um, Latin, as well as thousands of copies in Syriac and Coptic. But in addition to all that, we have the quotations from the second, third, and fourth century church fathers who so liberally quoted from the books of New Testament that scholars tell us we could recreate the entire New Testament even without the the 6,000 Greek copies and the 8,000 Latin copies just by the quotations of the New Testament that are found in the commentaries and letters by these early church fathers, Okay. Let's look real quickly at, uh, at some of these early manuscripts. Uh, the papyri, which would be the very earliest copies we have, the significant ones are the John Ryland's manuscript, which dates to 117 to 138, and that's got parts of the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John is the one that comes under the most fire from skeptics because of its high Christology. Of of the four Gospels, the Gospel of John is the one that gives Jesus the most clearly presents Jesus as divine and, and miracle working. But charges against the Gospel of John don't stick because we actually have a fragment of that Gospel that dates to within about 30 years of the writing of that Gospel. The Bodmer papyri have most of the Gospels of Luke and John and date to AD 200. And the Chester Beattie papyri have most of the New Testament and date to AD 250. And then the next set is two early parchments. So parchments would just be animal skins. And again, not a real, uh, not a writing material that you'd expect to last a whole lot. Um, Codex Sinaiticus, also referred to as Aleph by the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, was uh rediscovered in a monastery on Mount Sinai in 1859, and it has all of the New Testament and dates to A.D. 340. Um, Codex Vaticanus, so named because it's housed in the Vatican Library, has almost the entire Bible in it and dates, again, to A.D. 325 to 350, and that's referred to for shorthand as B. So I'm going to come back to Aleph and B a little later in the story of the history of how we got our, our New Testament Scriptures. But the bottom line at this point is that based on the number and the early dates of the uh, existing manuscripts, the New Testament exceeds by orders of magnitude the reliability of any other non biblical ancient text. Okay? So the charge of tainted transmission really is, is a non issue. However, based on the fact that we have these thousands of copies, And and because those copies would have been made by hand for the first 15 centuries of, of Christendom, there are many places where there are discrepancies. What I'll refer to the rest of our time here as variants. Places where one manuscript says one thing and another manuscript at the same place says something slightly different, okay? The mistakes would have been made in copying and then they would have been compounded geometrically. Each time a mistake was introduced, it was then copied again and again, okay? So in the existing manuscripts, all these copies I've talked about, there are literally hundreds of thousands of places where there are variants. And so again, a skeptic like Bart Ehrman, um, whose New York Times bestselling book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why, Ehrman would pick up on that fact that there are so many discrepancies and say, we really can't tell what the original said at all, okay? Um, so at this point, let me give you an analogy uh, for, for this whole subject area. And this is an, an analogy from Greg Kokel at Stand to Reason, Christian Apologist Ministry. And it's called Aunt Sally's Secret Sauce. So imagine that your great Aunt Sally is given in a dream the recipe for an elixir that provides perpetual youth. She wakes up and immediately copies down the ingredients and the instructions, the, the recipe in detail. In the morning, she makes this recipe and starts taking it, and lo and behold, it works. Two weeks later, she feels and looks a whole lot younger. So your Aunt Sally decides to share it with her three closest friends, who she plays bridge with every week. So the next bridge meeting, she takes her recipe there and allows each of her bridge partners to make a hand copy of that recipe. Now, I'm going to extend Kokel's analogy a little further for my own purposes later on, so I'm going to have to name these bridge partners. And in time-honored tradition, when describing a bridge hand, we'll call them East, North, and West, okay? No, let's, let's make Sally North. So East, South, and West, okay? So they try this recipe, and it works for them too. So each of them independently invites 10 friends over who then make hand copies of their respective copies. So now we have one original, three early copies, and 30 subsequent copies, all right? Well, one day Sally walks into the kitchen and finds that her pet cockatoo has destroyed her original of the recipe. And so she calls East, West, and South, and uh, only to find that East has mistakenly used hers to start a fire in the wood stove. West has irretrievably lost hers while on an ocean cruise, and South thinks hers still exists but can't for the life of her find it. So she, they, they all call their 10 friends each, and among those 30 friends, they're able to recover 25 copies, and they give them to Aunt Sally. Well, right away, Aunt Sally recognizes that there are some, some differences among them. But, but sort of in a pattern. There's about a third of them that contain abbreviations for the measurements of the ingredients, whereas the other two thirds do not. A different third of them uh, has some spelling mistakes and also has chocolate, whereas the other two don't include chocolate. <laughs> uh, and then the, the other third has a somewhat problematic tablespoon of Tabasco sauce where all the others have a teaspoon, right? There's there's one copy that says cayenne where all the others say red pepper, and there's a couple of copies that say mix then chop instead of chop then mix. But the question that Greg Coco poses is, can Aunt Sally recreate what the original must have been? And the answer is, of course she can. Are you with me there? So... When it comes to the New Testament, there's an entire scientific discipline called New Testament textual criticism, which enables scholars to do the same thing based on all this manuscript evidence that we have. And it enables the reconstruction of the New Testament autographs to greater than 99% certainty, okay? Let me point out that the problem to which Bart Ehrman calls our attention, the vast number of differences is a direct result of the vast number of manuscripts we have to work from, which all other scholars see as a good thing, not a bad thing. And we don't have 75% of the New Testament, as is the case with Tacitus's annales What we have is 105%. And the trick is to figure out which is the chaff and which is the wheat, to get at what we think the originals must have said. As with the copies of Aunt Sally's secret sauce recipe, the vast majority of the variants in the New Testament manuscripts are insignificant, okay? They include things like errors in spelling or alternate spellings, changes in word order, where one manuscript has Christ Jesus, another one has Jesus Christ, uh, alternate names for the same person or place, so the region in which Jesus cast a, a legion of demons into a herd of swine is variously in the different manuscripts referred to as that of the Gadarenes or the Gassarians or the Gergesenes, okay? But these are all insignificant uh, variants, the vast majority. But there are in fact about 2,000 places in all the manuscript evidence where there are variants that are both significant, that is meaningful, and yet, and, and where we don't really know what the original, with, with 100% certainty, what the original was. Uh, the largest of these, there, there's two that are significant chunks of your, your New Testament scriptures. And, and one is the last 12 verses of the Gospel of Mark. Okay, Any, anybody aware of that issue there? Uh, another one is the account that begins at the end of uh, John chapter 7 and goes into chapter 8 of John's gospel, where Jesus encounters the woman uh, caught in adultery, okay? Those are the biggest two chunks. Um, And and Ehrman, see, I don't really believe Ehrman believes the thesis of this book. I think he's being deliberately provocative to to sell books, and, and he did. But he undermines his own thesis, which is that we have no idea what the originals say, when in the paperback version of this book, he lists the top 10 verses not originally in the New Testament. And the very fact that you can identify those verses that are dubious tells you that we have a good idea of what the, what the rest of the original really was. So of 20,000 lines in the New Testament, there's only 40 lines that are in doubt about one-fifth of 1% of of the whole thing. No Christian doctrine depends upon any of of these dubious or questionable uh, lines. And any good study Bible identifies most of these so you're aware of of the variance. So in my uh, English Standard Version study Bible, both of those two big chunks I just told you um, are in there in the body of the text for the sake of tradition and completion but both of them are called out with brackets, or in my case, double brackets, and a footnote telling me that these verses are not in the earliest manuscripts that we have. They're in whole lots of other manuscripts, they're just not in the earliest one, okay? So this is kind of weird, but that was the conclusion to the sermon, even though it's, I'm only halfway through. The, the conclusion is that you can be very certain and confident that what you have before you in your English study Bible, as you study to understand more about God and his relationship to you and what he's called you to do, you can be confident that what you have before you in your English version is 99.8% accurate to the original Greek, the inspired, authoritative, uh, inerrant, original Greek. Okay? But now what I want to do for the rest of my time is... uh, Descend from cruising altitude and get down in the weeds, as it were, of New Testament textual criticism, to help you understand the the principles involved and the decisions made by the editors of your version of the English Bible. So that, first of all, that you can answer if if you get this criticism from someone in your workplace or family, but also that you better understand as you're reading through your study Bible what all these marginal notes and these other manuscripts say and all that sort of stuff is about. So this is in keeping with the scriptures that Carrie read to, it, to us, that we're, we're called by God. The Lord Jesus wants us to rightly divide the word and to be students of the word so that we're equipped for every good work that he calls us to. And so that's what we're gonna do the rest of the time. I, I kind of asked you to bring your study Bible, if you remembered, so that as we go through some of these dubious readings, some of these ones we're not sure about that are significant, um, that you'll be able to see how, your, how the editors of your Bible handle it, whether they identify it through marginal notes or whatever. And, and I, hope to, I hope you'll see the practicality of some of this. So how many of you have ever been angry? And for the rest of you, maybe you've been in the room with an angry person, right? (laughs) So uh, wouldn't it be nice as those who are partnering with the Lord Jesus in the reconciliation of all things uh, that he's accomplishing through his church, wouldn't it be nice to know what Jesus thought about anger? Okay, well, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, uh, we find Jesus teaching about anger. And so the quotations I'll have up here are, again, from my English standard version, and you can see uh, how your study Bible deals with it. In Matthew 5, 22, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. But after the word angry is a superscript, um, which you can see there, that directs me to the marginal notes where it says, some manuscripts insert without cause. So you see the difference. Is is Jesus calling out anger of all kinds, or is he only calling out anger that is not justified? Okay? If he's called you to combat injustice, is it okay for you to be angry about the injustice you face every day, the systematic injustices you're, you're battling? We'd like to know, right? Um, we're gonna come back to this one after I've given you the tools to decide whether whether the editors made the right choice here or not. But let me for now let me say that the comment some manuscripts insert without cause is itself question begging. That is, until we find the original of, of Matthew's gospel, it's still an open question whether the original included without cause or omitted it, right? And I think this is a case where the editors of my study Bible get it wrong. I think with, without cause was in the original. And I'll hope to show you why and give you the, the tools necessary to figure out for yourself whether you think I'm right there or, or the editors of my Bible are right. And by the way, this is stuff that you really only get in seminary, but it's, it's not that hard. And, and I know your intelligence level is enough to handle it. So it's gonna be simple even though it is graduate-level stuff, uh, usually, okay? So in our analogy, uh, when, when Sally recovered all of those 25 manuscripts, what she found was three sets or three patterns of differences among them, right? Well, that's a good analogy for what we find in the New Testament because when we look at all the manuscripts and the, and the patterns of variations found in them, what we find is that there are three identifiable text types. Uh, Types in which, when there are variants, they all seem to align separate in this one from these other two and, and the same on down the line. Those text types are referred to as Byzantine, which means all the Eastern portion of early Christendom, Greece and Asia Minor and such. The Western text type, which would be most of the rest of Christendom, uh, from North Africa through Spain and Rome up to Gaul. And then the Alexandrian text type, which as its name implies is only found in and around Alexandria, Egypt. So if we went back to our analogy, let's say that uh, the friends of East and and South are spread all over the city and all over the tri-state area. Whereas all of the friends who copied South's South's copy live in the same small retirement community as South does. Okay, that would be the Alexandrian text type is is very narrowly confined. Now, each of these three text types is supported by some of the Greek manuscripts, 5,800, some of the 8,000 and more early translations into Latin, Syriac, and Coptic, and supported by some of the church fathers. So Origen, a church father writing in Alexandria, when he quotes New Testament scripture, would be quoting the Alexandrian variants. Are you with me? So uh, Chrysostom, writing from Antioch in Syria, when he quotes the the New Testament books, it would be with a Byzantine flavor. And when a church father from Rome, like Tertullian or Jerome, quotes the early books of the New Testament, it would be with uh, the variants that, that we call the, the Western variants, okay? The other really important thing we need to know at this point is that scholars all acknowledge, even if they don't put it into practice, that all of the, nearly all of the variants arose very early in church history, okay? So this would be like saying that the variants introduced into Sally's special sauce recipe were really introduced by her bridge partners and that their 30 friends were pretty faithful in in copying those copies, okay? Now, the reason for this with the New Testament is, is a pretty straightforward one. It wasn't until the third and fourth centuries that the church went through the process of canonization, whereby they took all of the writings from New Testament times and with the help of the Holy Spirit, figured out which ones were apostolic and orthodox and inspired. And it was only sometime in the fourth century that it was compiled as the New Testament and viewed from then on as Sacred Scripture with a capital S on the equivalent of the Old Testament, right? So after that time, it would have been extremely difficult to introduce variation, whereas before that time... As, as copyists were real quickly copying a letter that just arrived from the Apostle Paul so that it could be sent, a copy could be sent on to Laodicea and Corinth and such, even, even if they had a very high view of what they were copying, it wasn't capital S Scripture. It was a letter from a church planter or it was a biography by the physician Luke of the life of Jesus, okay? So mistakes did occur. And some of them were accidental, So an example would be from Romans 5, uh, verse 1. Where in my my version, and you can turn to yours if you haven't, Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But after the word we, it directs me to to the margin where it says some manuscripts say, let us. So you see the difference. We have peace. Paul would be saying, this is just the reality, we have peace with God. Or let us have peace would be more like asking us to do something to appropriate or, or grab hold of a peace that's available, right? But the point for now is that it's clearly an accident because the difference between we have and let us have is just in, in the same Greek three-syllable word, ekumen, is the O in the middle syllable, the long Greek Omega, or the short Greek Omicron. So this was probably introduced when, when, scri- when monks were copying out as a, a head monk read the book of Romans to them, and they're doing it orally. Some heard Ekumen, while others heard Ekumen. Right? And a, and a variant was introduced and then subsequently copied. But some changes in these early centuries before uh, canonization were intentional changes where the copyist really felt like he was improving in the the copy he was making from the manuscript he was copying from. So an example would be Mark 1-2, where my book says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then there's a quotation that comes word for word from Isaiah, but I have a superscript telling me that some manuscripts say in the prophets. Now, this could go either way. It could be that some, uh, some copyist came to an original that said in the prophets and said to himself, Well, I, I don't know about that, but I do recognize it from Isaiah, and so changed it to Isaiah the prophet. I think it was likely that the other, it went the other way, that some scribe came to in Isaiah the prophet and said to himself, well, I recognize that, but it's not only Isaiah, it's also in Malachi. Mark wasn't really on his game when he wrote this. I'm going to make it better, okay? So for now, just uh, an example of an intentional change. So when a textual critic or the editor of your English version uh, decides what, translate, what, what Greek to go with as far as translating from, <clears throat> they look at two types of evidence, internal and external evidence. Internal evidence would deal with the meaning of the or or ask the question of what type of change occurred here, okay? And there are a couple of principles. One main principle when looking at internal evidence would be prefer the reading that best explains how the other variant arose. Makes sense, right? So in Sally's Secret Sauce, it's pretty easy to see how somebody in, in writing down a recipe for this perpetual youth elixir, would add chocolate, it's a little more difficult to see why if chocolate was there, somebody would have taken it out, right? Prefer the reading that best explains how the other arose. Uh, and closely tied to that and kind of similar in most cases would be prefer the more difficult reading. Why would a copyist finding something straightforward and simple make it more embarrassing or awkward or difficult? when it's easy to see how it would go the other way, right? So let's look at John 3.13. Another one of these 40 lines in your New Testament of questionable, significant uh, variance. Jesus is on the street corner at night in Jerusalem talking to Nicodemus the Pharisee, and he says about himself, "'No one has ascended into heaven "'except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man.'" period. But there's a superscript there in my bible that says some manuscripts append onto the end of that sentence who is in heaven. So this is sort of difficult because if we if we assume that who is in heaven was really there, Jesus would be saying that while I'm standing here talking to you Nicodemus, I'm also with my father in heaven. That's kind of the omnipresence of Jesus and that's something we today don't have a problem with. We believe that Jesus is right now bodily in heaven with the Father, and yet in this community with us right now in spirit, right? But we live on the other side of the church's hammering out the the creeds about the dual nature of Christ and his sharing the attributes of the Father, including omnipresence. So this variant would have occurred before the church came to a a concrete understanding of of that aspect of, of who Christ was. In this place, there's actually four variants. A handful of manuscripts, so so some manuscripts omit who is in heaven. Many have it in there. A handful of manuscripts say who is from heaven and a handful of manuscripts say who was in heaven. Do you see that the one original that would make sense of all the others is if who is in heaven was really there? And some early scribe, didn't understand what was going on there and made it easier by just omitting it or changing it to was or or from, right? Okay. Again, this is one that the editors of my Bible have relegated what I believe to be the original reading to the margin and it's not in the body of the text, right? So the external evidence would look at two principles, really. Given this vast manuscript, copies that we have to look at. And the first one would be prefer the oldest reading. And that makes perfect sense, right? Except with the caveat that we've already acknowledged that all the text types are probably equally old coming from the first three centuries before the process of canonization. The second principle would be prefer the most widespread reading. And that makes sense too, right? In every case where there's just two variants, there will be one text type that has a particular variant and the other two text types would share the other variant, right? And so in our analogy of Sally's Secret Sauce, we would prefer, in in almost all those cases, we prefer the reading that was shared by two-thirds of the manuscripts, right? Rather than the one that was unique to one-third of the manuscript particularly if that one third was just that one nursing or that one retirement community, Um, right? Okay. So back to John 3.13, the one we just looked at, who is in heaven. I've I've tried to say that the internal evidence suggests that who is in heaven, which is relegated to my margin, probably belongs in the text based on the internal evidence. The external evidence is that who is in heaven was found in both the Byzantine and the Western text types. It's only in the Alexandrian text type that it was omitted, okay? So I think it belongs in in the text. So now the question is, so why did the editors of my study Bible, and probably yours too, unless you're using a King James or a New King James, why did they leave it out if the internal evidence suggests that it should be in the body of the text? And so that gets us into the history of this. Um, So for most of of, uh, the church age, the text type that had the most support, the best support, the one that underlines the King James and the New King James, was the Byzantine text. So when the King James was first translated from the Greek, it was done so from four or five Byzantine manuscripts, not Alexandrian or Western, Okay. But also, the Byzantine had the most support because in terms of just number of manuscripts, about 90% of those thousands of manuscripts we talked about are Byzantine in nature, okay? But then in the 1800s, in the 19th century, what happened was the discovery of those earliest papyri and those two early parchments that we looked at earlier Those discoveries all came in and around Alexandria, and they were Alexandrian readings at the variance. Now, there's just a climatic reason why in in the dry region of Egypt, such manuscripts might last longer than in the rest of Christendom. But what happened in the 1800s was that the textual critics and editors of translations pendulum swang away from Pendulum swung, pendulum something away from the Byzantine reading to the Alexandrian reading simply because of what was found in Aleph and B and the early papyri. So uh, in 1881, uh, a couple of scholars named Westcott and Hort published what they audaciously called the New Testament in the original Greek in which they basically accepted Alexandrian readings. And ever since then, except for the King James, New King James, most of the editors of our modern English translations have gone with Westcott and Hort, uh, and and most of the more recent editions of the Greek Testament have followed the same principle, which is accept the Alexandrian because it's the oldest for which we have actual evidence. Okay, So in doing so, and I'm simplifying things a little bit here, but in doing so, they've, they've followed the one principle of external evidence, prefer the oldest reading, but they've kind of ignored the other principle, prefer the most widespread reading, right? And they've ignored the acknowledgement we've already stated that all of these variants probably arose contemporaneously or before Aleph and B., And in fact, some of those earliest papyri, which have generally Alexandrian readings, have some Byzantine readings, which in the later Aleph and B are now Alexandrian readings, proving that some of those Byzantine readings are equally early or earlier, okay? And also they've tended to not look at the internal evidence, prefer the reading that best explains how the other ones arose. So with that, let's go back to Matthew five twenty-two, where Jesus teaches on anger. Um, the external evidence is that without cause, which is relegated to the margin in my study Bible, without cause would have been found throughout ancient Christendom, except in Alexandria, Egypt. So the external evidence would suggest it belongs as the original in the, in the body of the text. But we could, we could go on and on about the internal evidence. Um, is anger always wrong? Does God get angry? Of course he does. Micah 5.15, God is angry. Yahweh is angry. Uh, Jesus gets angry in at least a couple of places in the same gospel of Matthew. He gets angry with the Pharisees. He gets angry with the money changers in the temple. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.26 commands us to be angry in a verb form that tells, says we should continue to be angry about systematic injustices and things like that. Paul qualifies our anger. It's not supposed to work unrighteousness. We're not supposed to go to bed with it and all that sort of thing. But Paul commands us to be angry. So I would suggest that the internal evidence likewise says that without cause was probably in the original and should be in the body of the text, not relegated to the margin. There are uh, a few other nuances, and uh, it, it's not as simple as I've made it, but, but, but to some degree, those two big chunks, the ending of the Gospel of Mark and the account of Jesus' interaction with the woman caught in adultery, uh, are the same way. In, as far as internal evidence goes, I can't really imagine why an early copyist would have made up and inserted either of those passages— But I can see why an early copyist found them problematic and left them out. The ending of Mark is is a very charismatic passage. It talks about holding snakes and all sorts of other things. And and the early church was not very charismatic. In fact, it suppressed what it took to be a heresy of charismatic folks. So I can see why a, a scribe had a problem with that. There are only four manuscripts of, of all those thousands of copies we talked about, there's only four manuscripts which entirely leave out that, en- that disputed ending of the Gospel of Mark. But they happen to include Aleph and B. And so most editors have chosen to point out that the earliest and best manuscripts don't include it. But I think the ending of the Gospel of Mark belongs there. And there's other internal evidence we could talk about. The same with the uh, account of Jesus's uh, interacting with the woman caught in adultery uh, it 's only the Alexandrian reading that doesn 't have that portion, and yet, in ignoring all the other principles we talked about, the editors of most of your study bibles would would point out that that 's dubious and maybe maybe not be original, but I believe it was I believe it belongs in our in our body without brackets or double brackets and and we teach and will continue to teach. Uh, from that account of Jesus' interaction with that woman because uh, I think it really uh, highlights Jesus' mercy and grace and and character and and the the folks to whom he came to to bring reconciliation. Okay? So that wasn't too hard, was it? Um, Again, we're talking about 40 lines out of 20,000 lines in the New Testament. Most of your study Bibles point them out And now you have the tools to even question uh, whether the editors of your version uh, made the right choices or not. Again, all of that is in in keeping with the the scripture from 2 Timothy that uh, Carrie read for us. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction... And for training in righteousness/slash justice, that the messenger of God, the man and woman of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. We here at Antioch believe that we are saved by grace through faith, but that we are saved to do the good work that the Lord has prepared for us, as Second 2 Timothy 2:15 2, or so has it. Okay. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator and Redeemer, we just thank You for the marvelous way in which You've revealed Yourself to us through the the written Word, through the Scriptures that You inspired and that You marvelously preserved evidence uh, for across the centuries. We thank You that uh, we have before us and in our homes many copies of your inspired authoritative word in our own language that we might study it learn more about you from it learn more about uh, our need for you and, and and to learn more about what you've called us to as your followers we thank you for partnering for for inviting us to be partners with you in the reconciliation of all things and we pray that as we uh, as we read our bibles as we study them that we would rightly handle your word and that we would uh, be better followers because of our time spent in it. In Jesus' name we pray.